Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. Hard to believe tomorrow marks New Year's Eve. And before we know it, a new year will officially begin. I didn't think I would uh, get a chance to be back on the air uh, before this year ended, but uh, but there is good news to report. I am on the air, and I figured why not uh, take the time to get in another podcast before uh, New Year's Day. Well, that's what I'm going to do, and we are now uh, going to be uh, talking about, um, well, we've, we're already talking about Thomas Paine, most notably in Harlow Giles Unger's Thomas Paine and the Clarion Call for American Independence. But if I'm not mistaken from the previous episode, we discussed about a famous pamphlet of his that most of us know all so well. But then again, I'm sure that most of you who listened to my podcast were intrigued to know just uh, what all went on uh, in order for Thomas Paine to uh, be able to go about successfully publishing that pamphlet. It's one thing to uh, write an essay, but you've got to have someone who will publish it for you. So, had it not been for um, someone who was wanting to uh, publish uh, the article, had it not been for Dr. Benjamin Rush's uh, connections, who knows if Thomas Paine's um, essay that we know so well of common sense would have become such an instant hit, knowing that within a year from the time he first published it, that common sense itself would would have 150,000 copies sold. Well, what else is there to discuss now? Well, if I'm not mistaken, when I was on the air last, uh, right as we ended the previous podcast, Thomas Paine decided to take another course, and that was to um, not only um, not only express his thoughts by means of writing, but also by taking a, a course that would allow him to be on the battlefield with with fellow comrades who shared the same ideas as he did, most notably freedom. Well, not just freedom, but independence from England. Yes, we've already declared our separation from England by means of the Declaration of Independence, but it's one thing to declare your separation from the mother country. You're going to have to fight for it on the battlefield, and that's what we learned um, from the previous podcast, but now we are going to be discussing more about the next uh, road that Thomas Paine himself takes, not just from a battlefield point of view, but also even with a work with another work of writing that's in store. So our first uh, leadoff question will be the following: What's unique about July 9th, 1776? Well, is it fair to say that five days earlier the Continental Congress had officially adopted the Committee of Five's uh, work, or most notably the work of Thomas Jefferson's, aka the Declaration of Independence? So on July 2nd, the Continental Congress approved uh, Richard Henry Lee's um, resolution in that all uh, 13 colonies ought to be free and independent from England, but it was put to a final vote on July the 4th, and everyone there unanimously agreed. So, okay, we all know about the importance of July 4th, and what led up to July 4th, but why, but why is July 9th so significant? 
Well, for one, Thomas Paine officially volunteers into the military or into military service by joining what's called a flying camp, a flying camp that um, originated out of Pennsylvania. I'm sure many of you are thinking, I've never heard of a flying camp before. After all, there's no such thing as, no such thing as airplanes in the 18th century. Well, we all know that, but a flying camp is basically a reserve unit or reserve units whom would go about moving from one battle to an uh, to another and support fellow comrades. So in other words, think of flying camps as one version of a national guard or a modern day national guard, but they are reserve units whom would whom could be found from one place after another at a moment's notice. So in other words, you know, this uh, flying camp is not going to go from, say, from New Jersey all the way down to South Carolina because there's nothing going on in South Carolina right at this moment that would entice um, people down south to take up arms exactly with the crown. In other words, if there are any uh, men uh, south of New Jersey, like Virginia and the Carolinas, for example, they have marched northward to fight in the current uh, hostilities that are engaged in New York and in soon to be in New Jersey. Well, yes, we know now that Thomas Paine has officially volunteered into the military service. But also on July 9th, the Declaration of Independence was read out loud for the first time to a large crowd at Bowling Green Park, New York, which is just on the outskirts of New York City, where General Washington and his forces were in attendance celebrating the festivities. So this is the first time now, folks, that people are really beginning to understand the significance of what has just taken place less than a week uh, before, most notably in New York. I can't imagine having been alive during that time and actually hearing the Declaration of Independence get read for a first time. Now, when my wife and I were in Philadelphia over the summer, we were there during July 4th week, and we got to listen to a reading of the Declaration of Independence right as we were um, waiting to go inside. Um, and that was uh, quite a, um, that was quite a uh, unique experience in terms of hearing the Declaration of Independence itself get um, read aloud. Well, um, the military unit that Thomas Paine uh, served in went to reinforce defense lines at Amboy, or what we now know today as Perth Amboy, New Jersey, which is located right outside of Edison in the uh, northern part of New Jersey. Paine's commander, and we'll learn about his commander here soon and why his commander is of significant importance, but Thomas Paine's commander has assigned him to estimate the overall size of British forces coming into New York by sea. Thomas Paine, in the end, estimated around 350 ships, whereas Washington's army was around roughly 10,000. The British army neared, the British army was more than 10,000. So let me ask you all this. Exactly what number did the British Army near, given that roughly 350 ships had made their way 
by ocean into New York Bay or New York Harbor, the number is between 20 and 40,000 um, British troops. The answer is 30,000. So nearly 30,000 troops encompassing 350 ships have arrived into uh, New York Harbor. This would make Thomas Paine, along with any other, um, what do you call it, any other uh, patriot or anyone um, on the side of the Continental uh, Forces, tremble. It's not so much the ships coming in, it's the people that are coming off the ships. It's the sheer size, the might of the British Army. Perhaps this is King George III's way of saying, okay, you may have driven us out of Boston, but you all aren't anywhere close to defeating the mightiest empire in the world just yet. And to prove just how mighty and strong we are, we're sending the whole nine yards across the ocean. We're not just going to send five or ten ships. We're sent, In the end, it's going to be over 300, and you're going to have about a 30,000 um, troop force to deal with. That's very um, overpowering, to say the least, especially considering that probably so many of the uh, men that comprise of this Continental Army have probably never seen a whole lot of military experience in their life, in their lifetime up until now, and I, and I can uh, relay more of that here shortly. Well, what happened in late August of 1776 that actually made Thomas Paine's predictions come true? You know, Thomas Paine said to himself that he knew, given that there were about 30,000 troops on the enemy side, to nearly 10,000 on the Continental side. Payne knew that that if the uh, Continentals weren't careful, that their whole forces could be decimated. So Payne's harsh realities set in on August the 27th of 1776, nearly eight weeks, folks, after Congress declared its separation from England. British troops, along with their Hessian counterparts, and we will learn more about the Hessians here in a little bit, but, but the British troops, along with their Hessian counterparts, being around 20,000 total, when you combine both um, groups together, they go about um, swiftly coming upon Brooklyn in southwest Long Island. And both forces nearly obliterate Washington's army. So what does obliterate mean, folks? It's another word for, for um, annihilating or destroying uh, crushing. Washington, most of Washington's men serving under him have never dealt with a, um, what do you call it? They've never dealt with a, um, with professional, um, with, they've never dealt with fighting um, professional forces, fighting against professional forces. In other words, in England, you know, 20% of uh, the soldiers come from uh, well-to-do families, so they are capable of uh, purchasing their commissions. The other 80% are, are of the lower uh, ranks in society, and it turns out that probably most of those uh, soldiers had spent um, periods of time in jail, and that the best way to keep those um, men from making the same mistakes was to put them in the army. So just remember, 80% of the um, British army is comprised of um, men of the uh, lower uh, tiers of society, whereas 20% only make up the um, most exclusive elite of uh, the greater English society. 
So, yes, George Washington's um, forces are nearly obliterated, and so, and therefore he he and what's left of his forces are on the run. So I think it's fair to say that it's just a short matter of time before there may not be a continental army left, but an act of God comes into play. And what do I mean by an act of God here? Well, in this case, it's Mother Nature. Mother Nature, as we all know, throws all kinds of curveballs, for better or for worse. But Mother Nature actually threw a great curveball that allowed George Washington and what was left of his men to escape. Where would they have escaped to? Uh, they w escaped across the East River to New York Island, what we know as Manhattan, um, two days um, after um, nearly being annihilated at Brooklyn. So on August the 29th, thanks to uh, Mother Nature's um, curveball, Washington's remaining army, thanks to, v thanks to thick nighttime fog, allowed for his uh, forces to escape along the East River to New York Island, or what we know as Manhattan. A group of uh, Connecticut militiamen stayed behind and actually um, were known to have rolled um, barrels from one end to another, causing um, some forms of distraction that would have kept uh, the enemy from thinking that uh, perhaps it was another noise of sorts that was not uh, human-related. Is it fair to say, had it not been for the weather, that the British could have had their opportunity to have annihilated what was left of Washington's army? Absolutely. And if that had been the case, history would have been different, and uh, the war probably could have come to an end. Well, in the um, let me ask you this question here. Did a battle ensue on September 15th? Yes. Was this a battle that uh, resulted in victory or defeat for the Continental Army? I would give anything to say a victory, but uh, reality is, folks, no. This was not a joyous moment on September 15th for the Continental Army of any uh, proportion. And the ironic thing was that there really wasn't even much of a battle. Washington's Connecticut militia forces which comprised of about 8,000 men, folks, that would be enough to be able to muster an excellent um, battle against the enemy. But the problem is that for so many of these men, they panic. Why are they panicking? Because they saw five British warships it wasn't just so much that they saw five British warships. These British warships were powerful ships to where they were pounding Patriot defense structures left and right to where so many of these uh, militia forces didn't know what to do and took matters into their own hands by running for their lives without even firing a single shot back. In the aftermath of so many Connecticut militiamen running for their lives, the following in quotes, or in quotations rather, was said by none other than General George Washington. Uh, and I want you all to listen very carefully. Good God, Washington cried out, are these the men with which I am to defend America? What do you think Washington was uh, relaying here, folks? Washington himself knew 
just how many men spoke out against tyrannical rule. But at the same time, George Washington came to the realization that only a small select number had first-hand military experience. And where would that first-hand military experience had where do you think that first-hand military experience had previously come? From the Seven Years' War, a.k.a. the French and Indian War. The majority of men under Washington's command, being that of the Connecticut militiamen, militiamen forces, the majority of those uh, men were farmers whom only equipped themselves with rifles and muskets and non-military-related matters. When I think of non-military related matters, how about, you know, um, going out into the woods and hunting to provide food for your families? And then um, think about this. If there was an intruder on your uh, property, the um, individual himself would have uh, fired a shot into the air warning the intruder that he needed to leave before things got really out of hand. So think about it, folks. If you're just the average uh, farmer and you've never seen any kind of warfare in your life, when are you only using a rifle or a musket? For hunting and for protecting your private property if in the event an intruder has entered upon your grounds. So um, should, we, should we find out exactly whom was Thomas Paine's first military commander? I agree. Who do you think that first military commander was? Was it Horatio Gates? Was it Nathaniel Green? Was it um, was it Alexander Hamilton? So your choices are Horatio Gates, Nathaniel Green, or Alexander Hamilton. It turns out that Thomas Paine's first military commander was Major General Nathaniel Green whom would go on to become a dear friend of Payne's. It was at Fort Lee, New Jersey, where Nathaniel Green was sent to recruit reinforcements, and it would be the same place where Green and Payne met one another and formed a friendship that would last for many years. Sometimes you never know where connections will take you, and, and how ironic in this case that the connections that were um, that were um, bonded um, came about on the um, battlefield, not just on a battlefield, but came about in the uh, overall um, mission or uh, quest for um, for um, for winning um, independence from England, but doing so on the battlefield. Did the entire New York battle campaign result in complete failure? Well, based upon what I've already mentioned, is it fair to say that nothing really good came out of the New York uh, campaign from a battle pers battlefield perspective for the Continental Army? Yes. Well, for one, American forces had fled in disorder from multiple directions after the attack at White Plains. And for those of you who want to know where White Plains is, it's in the southernmost edge of New York State that's... Um, it lies north of uh, Brooklyn. It lies just north of New York City, uh, New Rochelle. It's basically um, it, just south of uh, Newburgh and um, West Point and uh, Rock Tavern. 
So basically, White Plains is on that southernmost tip of New York State. It's in the um, heart. It's, it's still in what we call Catskill country. So, um, yes, think about this. Yes, uh, that uh, American forces fled in disorder from multiple directions after the attack at White Plains. And then all the other previous battles, like the battle at Brooklyn Heights, uh, uh, Brooklyn, oh, Brooklyn Heights, I should say, um, around Long Island, every Kipps Bay, um, everything was just a disaster. And these uh, disastrous battles contributed to mass desertions. When someone deserts, what does that mean, folks? It has nothing to do with eating a dessert after your main meal. When you desert, you are leaving. You're not coming back to where you had originally committed from or where your original commitment was um, intended to be. 3,000 troops, folks, desert the Continental Army and make their way over to the British side. That, to me, is a crushing... um, It's a crushing uh, blow with regards to morale. And morale itself will be mentioned even more in this podcast. So if 3,000 troops deserting is bad enough, how about losing an assortment of equipment? How about 46 cannons getting uh, lost, folks? 2,800 muskets to tens of thousands of ammunition rounds. How, how in the world is a Continental Army going to function knowing that 3,000 troops have deserted, along with having lost 46 cannons, 2,800 muskets, and tens of thousands of ammunition rounds? To me, it sounds like the Continental Army could be on the verge of utter collapse. As winter was nearing in, Washington's forces retreated southward to Newark, New Jersey. And it was at Newark, while, um, while being encamped, that Thomas Paine began writing another pamphlet, one that sought to lift up public morale and, mo- and motivate Washington's less than 3,000-man force to continue the fight for independence. The work itself meant trying to prevent Patriot forces from surrendering altogether. And surrendering altogether, in this case, would have meant dropping, every one of them dropping their muskets and rifles to where where fighting for the cause of independence itself was no longer relevant. Are these, in fact, trying times, folks? I'm beginning to believe so. While encamped in New Jersey... Payne was also writing letters, or I should say dispatches, to the Pennsylvania Journal about the current circumstances facing the Continental Army. What happens on December 4th of 1776, folks? Where do Washington's forces arrive next? They arrive to Trenton. And is Trenton, New Jersey, folks, located near uh, the New Jersey-Pennsylvania line? Yes. Is Trenton located near uh, Philadelphia? Yes. So Washington and his forces arrived to Trenton. The British forces, on the other hand, are not far from Trenton. They're probably no more than maybe about two hours at most from Washington's forces. But their eyes are set on Philadelphia, America's capital. And by now, Congress has evacuated from Philadelphia to Baltimore, 
So it's, it's bad enough, folks, now that Congress is leaving its permanent capital and now having to go to a makeshift capital, being uh, Baltimore, just south of Philadelphia. But if Congress is on the run, how can government itself function long term knowing that if you can't stay in one place? I mean, th- these it's not just a trying time for the Continental Army. It might as well be a trying time for Congress as well as for the American people. On the other hand, I should be reminded of the fact that that for the only group of people who may not see this as a trying time could be those who are loyal to the crown, a.k.a. the loyalists. The loyalists have nothing to complain about right now. I mean, shoot, they are attending balls. They're attending um, public gatherings with, um, with British soldiers. They're just living the high life. As for everyone else, well... If they're not a loyalist, then they're an enemy. They're no friends of ours. So for George Washington, the only way to halt the British advancement from getting into Trenton or anywhere near Trenton would be for his troops to seize all river craft within a 15-mile radius. Okay, well, Rivercraft, folks. Uh, we're not talking jet skis, okay? We're not talking um, power boats or motor boats because none of that stuff exists. We're talking about um, rafts. We could be talking like canoes. We could be talking about any kind of boat that would involve um, people needing to oar in order for the boat to go in, in the direction that it's uh, intended to, um, to navigate. It's, not, it's, it's one thing to obtain a river craft, but who are you keeping the river craft from? The enemy. If you don't, if you don't seize any river craft, the enemy, have, the enemy being the British have every opportunity to navigate along the river and catch the enemy, being the Continental Army, off guard, and, and it could result in deadly consequences. What exactly did Thomas Paine do next after the Continental Army crossed the Delaware River? With consent from his commander, being Major General Nathaniel Greene, along with General George Washington, Thomas Paine journeyed 30 miles southward to Philadelphia, where his assignment involved going to the Pennsylvania Journal Press Shop and overseeing a new essay get published. The essay revolved around focusing on overcoming the current setback in the war for independence. Well, think about it, folks. You know, we don't have uh, telephones at this time. We don't have email. We don't have anything electronic to s- that would allow the other party to receive a message of high importance. You know, who's going to go to... Th- Philadelphia. I mean, Thomas Paine, yeah, he could find a courier, but where? But how soon is he going to find a courier? The bottom line is he's got some sensitive documents, and only he can be the one to take him into Philadelphia because he knows what's going on. Why place your information into the hands of a stranger that you don't know, for all we know, could be a spy who could reveal damaging information to the British about movements, or really about anything that would help them um, 
annihilate what's left of the Continental Army as well as the um, overall um, mission for independence from England. At the same time, Thomas Paine is en route to Philadelphia. Congress was currently in the midst of working towards getting help overseas from France. What's significant about December 19th of 1776? The Pennsylvania Journal's printer begins a run of 18,000 copies of Thomas Paine's essay. It would be an eight-page pamphlet titled the following, The American Crisis, Number One, by the author of Common Sense. Is America in a crisis right now, folks? Yes. And we'll find out more as to why it's so, such a bad crisis. While Thomas Paine oversaw the publication to his newest pamphlet work, what weighed heavily on the minds of the Continental Congress delegates? Many, For one, many if not all delegates feared that it would only be a short matter of time before the independence movement collapsed to where a Continental Army would no longer exist. But at the same time, something had to be done differently like never before. Is it fair to say we might find out here soon what, what that something was that had to be done differently like never before? And it has to be something radical. It has to be something that, in my opinion, could possibly reinvent how warfare is... Um, conducted because when I think of warfare in the American Revolution, I think of traditional European warfare style fighting. But we also should be reminded too that the American Revolution also saw its fair share of non-conventional non uh, European style um, warfare fighting. So it's a double-edged sword. Well, here we go. The winter season, per European warfare protocol standards, marked a time of rest or recovery. So during the winter time, you don't fight. Your objective is to rest. Your objective is to wait things out until spring comes around. And once spring comes around, then it's, uh, what do you call it, the conditions are ripe to where um, a battle itself can be um, conducted. However, General George Washington does not have the luxury, under no circumstances whatsoever, to wait until spring. For one, he's already de been dealt a crushing blow with desertions. You know, 3,000 men deserted over to the side of the British. Enlistments are about to expire. I mean, he's got a He's got a, at least a, a unit, or not just a unit, but his forces run about 3,000 men or less. And for many of them, their enlistments are about to expire. And once they expire, they're going to go back home to their families, tend to their farms. Going back and, and serving their country in time of war is going to be the last thing that's on their mind. Because for many of them, they probably already know that it's, that it's just going to be, it's going to take one more battle and this thing is all over given just how low morale itself has become. So George Washington, in order for George Washington to be able to do something drastic, he knew that for the revolution, 
movement to stay alive, he's going to need to bend the rules in order to restore morale on a greater, or I should say a larger scale. Not just for his troops, but maybe for the greater public. Given that so many of the uh, people in colonial America want separation from England. Well, Thomas Paine returns to camp just before Christmas and brings with him copies of the new pamphlet. Nathaniel Green and George Washington each read sections of the American crisis. Whereas common sense had raised America's had raised the American people's spirits in supporting independence from a political standpoint. Remember common sense had talked about how it was how there was nothing wrong with overthrowing a monarch. Um, I mean, that was pretty radical because nothing like that had ever been done before. General Washington and Major General Nathaniel Green each believed that Thomas Paine's new essay would lift troops' morale and curtail all existing defeatist attitudes held by Congress and the public. But in order for Thomas Paine's new essay to have any significant relevance, it's fair to say that even Washington, not just Washington, but the other generals like Nathaniel Green know that something new is going to have to be done to bend the rules in order to um, keep the flames of independence alive. Well, how does the American crisis start out in regards to the first sentence? This is important. I mean, the whole thing is important, but the first sentence is really what sets the tone. The, and this is in quotes, folks, these are the times that try men's souls. Did you hear that, folks? These are the times that try men's souls. At this existing moment, and this is what I, um, how I've responded to the uh, initial um, first sentence of the American crisis. At this existing moment, America is at a crossroads for survival. Considering her people four to five months earlier had declared official separation from England, and what I mean by her people, meaning the um, delegates in Philadelphia, had all voted unanimously come July the 4th to officially mark that as the day of official separation from England. However, the war against England has now gone so wrong, so terribly wrong, to where any flicker of hope has become ever so minimal in darkness. But even out of darkness comes light or comes hope. But in order for light to um, shine in darkness, men's souls must change. In order for the tough to get going, when the going itself is already at the point of making or breaking it. So in other words, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. In other words, you're down to your last um, you're down to your last life, or what I might think of as you know nine lives here, you're down to your last one. You can either throw in the bucket or throw in the towel. You can throw down your arms and say, I've had it. Once you've thrown down your arms, there may not be another chance. 
So for what's left of Washington's army, they pretty much have to decide for themselves, do we want to remain as subjects to the crown, or do we want to uh, continue this fight and prove to the crown that our separation from you all back in July was the real deal. It was no fake. We just have to go the extra mile by proving to you all in the battlefield that, that what we wrote on paper can equate to the same uh, can equate to the same results as what it will take on the battlefield. So, think about this, folks. We've got to find a way to get out of darkness and back into light. The passage, these are the times that try men's souls, became impacted everywhere. From homes, churches, schools, taverns. Once people started reading this, they all, many of these people realized that yes, we're a part of this greater conflict. That these are the times that aren't just trying men's souls from a male perspective. It's trying everyone's souls. We're going to do a two-part question here. But part one is the following. Did someone of, of upper-level intelligence uh, rankings, or I should say of the inner spy ring workings, provide General uh, Washington and his officers with valuable information regarding the enemy? The answer is yes. However, this man worked, or rather I should say served as a double spy. If he is a double spy, is does that mean he's um, confined to both sides of the conflict? Yes. Should I tell you all this man's name? I thought about it earlier, but then I thought to myself, well, Kirk, if you mention this man's name now, there may not be a need to mention his name somewhere else down the road, perhaps in this podcast uh, topic or for another one down the road. There is a book that I plan on reading somewhere down the road. And it has to do with uh, spies for whom George Washington turned to. Matter of fact, he turned to some spies during the American crisis. As a matter of fact, aren't, aren't we um, in the midst of a crisis right now and talking about a crisis? Well, hopefully when that time comes... Uh, when I uh, one day from now read this book, and it's a fairly new book, then maybe I'll get a chance to podcast that uh, particular um, book to you all, my fellow listeners. But for now, uh, we better focus on the real um, significance uh, behind this uh, particular segment. So yes, um, this man for whom um, whom was of uh, upper-level uh, intelligence ranking to the inner spy ring workings, did, in fact, provide George Washington and his officers with valuable information regarding the enemy, but yet he was a double spy. Part two uh, to this question is the following. Whom was the intended target for Washington's forces to attack once, arrival, once arriving into and around the outskirts of Trenton, New Jersey? Was it the British or the Hessians, or was it both? In other words, could both forces 
given that they are counterparts and are side by side, could both British and Hessian uh, soldiers be um, be stationed nearby? Well, the answer is uh, the Hessians. And I, we will talk more about the Hessians here in just a second. However, um, what I found interesting is that per, um, per the spy agent's findings, in other words, the man whom uh, relayed to Washington um, valuable information regarding the enemy was able to, de to determine that roughly about 1,400 Hessian soldiers were stationed at their post center. Okay, so um, let's find out a little bit of uh, information on the Hessians. Who are the Hessians? Are they soldiers from, um, from what we now know as modern-day Germany? Were the Hessians from uh, France, or were they from Italy? The Hessians are, um, are German soldiers. They um, served primarily as uh, support to what we call reserve personnel to the British Army. They were like mercenaries. In other words, they were, um, they were uh, hired to serve alongside um, another country where, in this case, the Hessians, given that they were uh, Germany or German, their government remained neutral. So in other words, okay, the government's neutral, but the soldiers have to take a side, and it's going to be by, um, by taking the side of the British. So the Hessians fought alongside British forces as entire units using their own flags. And many of the Hessians, they know about roughly 30,000 Hessians uh, served in the American Revolutionary War. Many of the Hessians came from, um, they know that about six German provinces uh, comprise the bulk of the Hessian uh, forces in the American Revolution, but... Two of those six provinces had the uh, greatest concentration of Hessian forces, most notably Hesse-Kassel and Hesse-Hanau. And it should be pointed out that King George III's wife is, is uh, Queen Charlotte of Mecklenburg. Queen Charlotte has German, um, has German lineage in, on her side of the family. And her side of the family derives from uh, Germany, and there is a place in Germany called Mecklenburg. After all, uh, King George III's um, official house uh, title name is the House of Hanover. And there is a county not far from where I live in Virginia called Hanover County. We have places in America like Hanover, New Jersey, Hanover, Maryland, Hanover, Pennsylvania, Hanover, Illinois, all derive from um, Hanover, Germany. So when you think of Hanover, think of um, the Hessians. Think of the American Revolution. Uh, most notably, think of like you know King George III, his wife. And there is um, Mecklenburg County, Virginia, right along the Virginia-North Carolina line. There is um, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, named after Queen Charlotte. Just to give you a few examples of how significant uh, the uh, German uh, connection is, given that uh, King George III and uh, Queen Charlotte are husband and wife. 
Now, late Christmas night into uh, the early hours of December 26th, see George Washington and his forces, including Thomas Paine, board an array of boats. And these aren't, um, <laughs> these aren't motor boats, folks. These are boats that are going to have to be manually, um, where people, where the men are going to have to manually uh, row uh, by oar across the river. What river are we talking about, folks? We're not talking about the James River. We're talking about the Delaware River. James River is in Virginia. But what is going to be placed on these boats, folks? Well, arms. Not just muskets and rifles, folks. We've got cannons to think about. So these are not dinky little boats going across the Delaware River. Some of the um, boats are going to be what are called Durham boats that are much larger than your average size canoe that can actually hold a broader array of supplies ranging from cannon to horses uh, to other, um, to other what do you call it, um, forms of uh, provisions that go beyond uh, muskets and rifles. And of course you've got your ammunition, but these boats, believe it or not folks, will only consist of three days worth of rations. So survival of the fittest is going to be at stake here, folks, considering we're already into winter. And the Continental Army is navigating through icy waters, folks. So this is no picnic joyride. You've also got rain and sleet to contend with. The journey takes nine hours across the Delaware River. Why nine hours, folks? Well, remember, not everyone left immediately on boats. Not everyone left out of the same spot. It turned, historians know that Washington's forces were um, designed to leave in different uh, sections along the Delaware River. And by doing so, it reduced the chances to where, if heaven forbid, one group of men got caught by the enemy, the other groups, would, being in different locations, could still sail across the Del Delaware River without getting caught and still be able to keep their top-secret mission alive. Matter of fact, Washington's um, theme behind this mission was the following, folks, victory or death. In other words, we're either going to win, but if we don't win and we die, then this whole cause for independence will die, will pretty much uh, die. A 2,400-man force at best made made the crossing over the river onto the land where Washington's forces marched roughly about 10 miles through the snow. And we should keep in mind, folks, too, that not all of the men are not, most of the men are not properly well clothed. Many of them don't even have uh, proper shoes on. Uh, there are holes in their shoes to where their uh, toes are, are going to uh, pretty much be exposed to frostbite. It, it's a very scary time. But you know what? This is where um, survival of the fittest is going to come into play. This is where uh, the Continental Army is going to um, either make or break under the trying circumstances that they're being faced with. Let's go back to the uh, spy officer here. Had the same spy officer whom provided Washington's forces with valuable intelligence about the Hessians go about doing the exact same thing for the Hessians regarding Washington's plans. Yes, yes indeed. However, top-level Hessian leaders, most notably Colonel Johann Rall, 
scoffed at all the warnings based upon a variety of things, most notably how um, how poorly trained and equipped the Continental Army uh, had become from past battles, especially during the New York campaign where the Hessians had had routed um, not just the British troops, but the Hessians had uh, ruthlessly routed um, American forces, resulting in uh, treacherous defeats. The Hessians simply saw the Continental Army, or their um, or Continentals in general, as being of the utmost inferiority. In other words, they, Colonel Johann Rall and his officers view the um, Continental Army really as a bunch of uh, ragtag nobodies who simply have no business being out on the battlefield. The minute they see the enemy, they run like there's no tomorrow. I'm beginning to think that maybe things are changing, especially, when the, especially um, knowing that these are the times that try men's souls. By the time Washington's forces arrived to Trenton's King Street, the Hessian forces were all confined inside their living quarters. Many of them were asleep and not aware that the unthinkable was about to occur. The unthinkable that would alter, perhaps not just the way war itself would be fought from an irregular uh, perspective, but how momentum and morale changed so suddenly when it was least expected. One Hessian officer stepped outside. Okay, this is not Colonel Johann Rall, but an officer below Johann Rall. One Hessian officer stopped, stepped outside only to cry out the following, in quotes, this is my German here, folks. I, I don't know a whole lot of German, but I'm going to pronounce this as best as I can. Derfend! Derfend! The enemy! The enemy! In other words, the enemy is right upon us. The Hessians, after hearing this, Hessians came out from their quarters only to be surprised or stunned by what was unfolding. The Hessians lost their cannons being their only two cannons, were lost to advancing American forces. It was so bad, folks, that no matter how, the, how quickly the Hessians assembled, the Americans were one step ahead of them from all different angles, firing cannons. Not just firing cannons, but that resulted in, um, in damage to structures it resulted in um, men um, being severely injured to where they could no longer fight. Men just running for their lives in chaos. Did General Washington's forces lose any men on this day of December 26, 1776? He lost two men out of 2,400, only two. That's, you know, it's unfortunate that only two, out of, two men out of 2,400 die, but, it, but it's also remarkable at the same time. Five men were wounded, and it turns out that two of the five wounded were officers whom led the raid 
being Captain William Washington, a distant cousin to General George Washington, and a lieutenant by the name of James Monroe, whom had put a halt to his studies at William and Mary. Historians do know that there were uh, doctors who, there, there was a doctor or two um, on the American side, and had it not been for those doctors, that General, um, that Captain William Washington and uh, Lieutenant James Monroe would not have survived. So, yes, Lieutenant James Monroe and um, William Washington made the ultimate sacrifice like so many others that were left to the Continental Army. But had it not been for the medical profession there that day, those two men would have lost their lives. As for the Hessians, well, the Hessian forces were about 1,500. And while only 22 died, their commander, Johann Rall, Colonel Johann Rall, was the first to be killed. They know that he was killed while getting onto his horse. Nearly 900 Hessians were captured. Well, what do you all think? What do you all think was attributed to why the American victory at Trenton was so uh, significant? What had the American victory at Trenton done? Washington's surprise attack which resulted in a shocking victory, helped restore American people's morale, including the Continental Army, which prior to the battle at Trenton was on the brink of collapse. People everywhere now finally had something to feel good about, especially knowing that the quest for independence now had greater meaning. The war itself isn't over yet, but we have something better to feel about we have something better to feel about knowing that a new year is not far away and that once the new year begins, that this battle for independence still has a chance. The victory at Trenton enabled the Declaration of Independence document to have a greater degree of relevancy. How so? Well, it's one thing to uh, write a document, or not just write a document, but to have, but to have so many men... Um, sacrifice their own lives by taking up arms against the crown by um, renouncing their allegiance to um, the mother country and officially declaring their separation. But if, but if your um, army, your makeshift uh, continental army, or your continental army for that matter, is not able to win on the battlefield, then how can a document have any relevancy? It's one thing to declare your separation, but you have to be able to prove it on an actual battlefield. So a document, like the Declaration of Independence, to, um, to achieving the improbable, go hand in hand, even when a crisis is at the heart of a people's fundamental well-being. The victory alone also enabled Congress to return to Philadelphia. Thomas Paine's pamphlet, The American Crisis, led men like Benjamin Franklin to nominate Paine to a government post. Congress approved and elected Paine secretary to Committee on, on Foreign Affairs. This was the precursor to the modern-day Secretary of State. Hey, Thomas Paine may not be like General George Washington or Major General Nathaniel Greene, but his writings have sparked so much morale, have sparked so much confidence. And all of that means something ever so more now, knowing that 
the improbable was done. And it wasn't just so much that the improbable was done, it was a matter of knowing when it was done. Remember, folks, in the wintertime, traditional European warfare protocol has it that you rest during the winter and you regroup in the spring. George Washington does not have, did not have that luxury. Desertions were rampant. Enlistments were about to expire. The message was pretty clear behind the mission. Victory or death. I've got to take my chances, and because of what that spy agent provided him with, he knew that that it was um, it was either that or um, or the flames for independence become officially extinguished. So these are the times that try men's souls. That's not to say that there will be some more instances down the road during this uh, battle for independence where um, that there will be other times where men's souls will be tried. For now, we have faced an obstacle, and we have overcome it. Thanks to a man who may not have signed the Declaration of Independence, but, it, but has been firmly behind America's uh, cause, being none other than Mr. Thomas Paine. When I'm on the air again next, uh, we will um, learn more about um, what happens, especially as, seven, as the year 1777 begins, and where Thomas Paine goes um, now that um, a watershed moment has happened to knowing that um, morale has now been restored in a manner that had not been seen up until the time that um, the Declaration of Independence um, was uh, agreed to. Thank you for your time, as always, and I hope all of you have a great new start to the new year. Thank you again for listening to my podcasts. You all are uh, amazing listeners, um, and if you all know of people out there who are interested in uh, history and want to know more through um, websites, just tell them to come to Pot to Anchor. It's free. The opportunities are limitless, and once you get started, there's no going back. Thank you, and uh, have a great start to the new year, and I look forward to being back on the air again with all, with all of you come uh, the start of 2022 later for now and uh, stay safe.